Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This is the latest episode in our ongoing series about the history of science in the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, curated by our own Nir Shafir, who is a PhD candidate at UCLA. Our guest today is Marwa Ashekri. She's an associate professor of history at Columbia University with a PhD from Princeton University. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Hot Off the Press, entitled Reading Darwin in Arabic, and the periodization on that is 1860 to 1950. Dr. El-Shekri, thank you for coming on the podcast to talk to us. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to start off our discussion with a question raised in the title of an article you published in ISIS a couple years ago, or uh, an, an issue you raised, which is how science became Western. And I'll mention a, a episode we've done Maybe it will come out after yours or before yours, I don't know, but it was about bicycles in the Ottoman Empire and how American travelers traveled across late Ottoman Anatolia and had this technology that they did neither invented nor knew how it worked, but came with a certain cultural capital that was related to their, the possession of this technology or their culture's possession of that technology. Uh, I think it really resonates with some of the questions you dealt with that article. So why don't we ask that question to start? How did science become Western? I mean, I guess in that article, I was really trying to think about um, sort of the discourse around science in the 19th century and how suddenly you had people speaking about science as though it were somehow universal, but at the same time, really a product of modern Western society and culture in some sense. Um, and, and uh, you know, in that sort of anecdote that you mentioned about the bicycle, somehow emblematic also of, you know, Western modernity mm-hmm. uh, at a particular period and epoch in its kind of evolution and so forth. So, I mean, there's this idea really that, you know, that people have in the 19th century incre- increasingly that science does um, emanate from Europe, does become a product of, uh, of the modern West. And we use the term pretty easily now. I mean, we think, you know, Western science, we use cognates, um, for that uh, and for uh, the alternatives to Western science, like non-Western science and so forth. But actually, you know, the, the, the term has a history and emerged at a particular moment. So I was kind of curious about when that emerged. And, you know, as I was doing some of the research and reading around that, uh, thinking about sort of how historians of science have used the term, um, and also, you know, everyone from, from missionaries to uh, you know, medical missionaries to uh, religious emissaries of one kind or another, and, uh, you know, I realized that actually it was kind of forged outside of the so-called West, um, you know, at a moment when uh, somehow the, the spread of European imperialism, of European capital, uh, was kind of really gaining ground at the, at the same time. So uh, I was kind of curious about sort of the, these kind of interactions and then also how people picked up that terminology themselves um, and, you know, tried to... to discover a kind of providence for science in their own region. So you get the emergence of sort of Chinese science and Arabic science mm-hmm. um, around the same time as well. So, Right. There's many facets of this trend. On one hand, trying to incorporate all of these quote-unquote non-Western sciences and sources of knowledge into like a sort of teleological narrative of the rise of Western science. But there's this paradox here of universal science being Western. Therefore, the Western is universal. And the rise of this notion within a particular political context. So I guess one of the things you've been focusing on is the social and political conditions that give rise to what seems like a rational and, you know, it was deemed as objective uh, endeavor. So moving beyond 
you know, this framework within which uh, paradoxically Western and universal science is operating in a particular political and social context. Let's move right into the theme of your book, which is the reception of, of this Western science in the Middle East and specifically in the Arab world. You know, the title reading Darwin in Arabic is kind of, uh, it kind of draws the reader and we want to know like, what did uh, Arabic readers think when they encountered these ideas? We know about the controversies in the United States, for example, with the Scopes trial. So why don't you set up this context for us a little bit? So, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, essentially what I was trying to do in the book was, you know, look at a variety of Arabic writings on Darwin or on evolution more generally and try and think about, you know, their translations and discussions of, you know, what you might call Western science, what we might call Western science, um, although they didn't necessarily call it that at the time. Um, but think about it not just a, as a kind of instance of, um, you know, reception, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. well, they understood sort of evolutionary theory by natural selection, but they didn't really quite understand the details of sexual selection or, or et cetera, et cetera. Um, so when you have that kind of view of sort of the transmission of texts that is based on sort of fidelity to some original idea or set of ideas, I think you sort of impose a certain reading of the original text um, and presuppose how it is received and picked up mm-hmm. um, and read in, in different discursive traditions. And so everything just becomes a kind of bad copy or good copy of, of some original idea. Um, I wanted to sort of somehow tell the story uh, differently um, and think about why um, you know so many Arabic writers essentially addressed this question of evolution, whether it be applied to the natural world or the human social world, um, the kinds of metaphors they drew from it and the lessons that they, they, they took from it, essentially. And, and really kind of focus it, focus the analysis on the ways in which this was a kind of creative rereading or a, a work of interpretation uh, in its own right and, and sort of take seriously why they made certain uh, interpretive assumptions of their own. Uh, and also, you know, the, the reading Darwin in Arabic is specific to the language in a sense. And so, was, um, you know, I'm interested in kind of how they translate these ideas as well, the terminology they use and that sort of thing. What's the translation they used for evolution at the time? So they use a variety of terms. Um, you know, they use tatawar is one of mm-hmm. the sort of more common ones. Um, but they also have, you know, the salsala, which is like the idea of sort of a, a chain of descent. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also, um, you know, f- phrases that are used for, you know, sometimes you could translate this as kind of evolution and progress, but it's really kind of growth and development, which is initial, which is kind of this idea of sort of rising up and sprouting. Um, so they're, they're, you know, they, they have an, a number of options, actually, when they right. talk about evolution. Um, That's a fascinating window because we have this term evolution. And, of course, Darwin has a definition of what it is. And it comes with these, like, progressivist connotations, perhaps. And then you have this social Darwinist spinoff. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But then when translating it into Arabic and choosing a word, what root do you choose? If you choose tatawur, there's an explicit, like, that's the modern word for development right this is about developing into something greater or but there's other interpretations of course that this is more random or you know exactly and so these debates did they come out uh they did. I mean, in the, it's funny, in the 19th century, I think a lot of um, Darwin's Arabic readers assumed that it had a kind of um, a, a progressivist, let's say, or developmentalist 
um, agenda that one could understand it in somewhat teleological terms, right? They didn't necessarily think of it as kind of random variation, um, uh, e even though, of course, you know, that is how we're kind of conditioned to read Darwin now. But in the 19th century, what's interesting is that so many people read Darwin through Spencer, Herbert Spencer. Mm -hmm. And so they understood evolution as a kind of um, a law of progress and development, which is how Spencer writes about it. Um, and 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 they sort of took for for granted that there was this um, sort of teleology of development uh, or of progress built into it. So a lot of the Arabic words that, that were used in the 19th century um, for evolution, um, you know, picked up on this theme of kind of development. And so you can you know see it being used um, in that context now. But um, you know, th there are also neologisms to some extent. So you know, Hassan Hussein has this long when he um, translates Heckel um, from an American translation of uh, the original German, uh, he has a long discussion in the preface about, you know, why he, you know, why he is kind of contributing to this literature on evolution and also where the term and idea for evolution uh, come from, especially in the Arabic context. And, and he talks a bit about, you know, sort of the, the kind of the, the verb, right, um, for, you know, so sort of to, to kind of emerge or develop and he uses um, a verse in the Quran to kind of justify the kind of the extension of that meaning right so I mean that's also interesting to think about how these translators were very kind of conscious of of the original um, you know uh, sort of rules of Arabic grammar and the methods by which they could construct new terminology to try and encompass something that they also thought had new meaning um, in, in in their own sort of times um, and they often talk about that. So, And that kind of leads into my next question, which was the uh, scientific and cultural context within which these ideas are being received. Of course, when talking about it from the Ottoman or Middle East perspective, it's easy to say that we have this Western science possibly challenged or not challenged by, say, religious authorities, etc. But it's easy to forget in, that, in the context of that question that evolution was very controversial, as is well known in the West, uh, challenged by quote-unquote creationists who thought that evolution went against uh, you know any reading of the bible we had these great debates in the united states so i'm wondering how uh arabic readers and especially in the early decades of darwin's transmission or translation into arabic how they assimilated that into pre-existing forms of knowledge you had the long-standing ideas of natural philosophy coming down through figures like ibn khaldun that might seem to resonate with uh the idea of evolution. But on the other hand, you have this uh, body of knowledge and scholarship that is all centered around uh, would-be sacred texts. How how did they uh, negotiate that? And that's another great question because, I mean, um, <clears throat> this is something, of course, that um, comes to mind, I think, to, to many people in a sense when they think about sort of, you know, reading Darwin in Arabic. They're kind of curious about the ways in which... Um, the theological religious implications are taken up in a non-Christian context, let's say, um, and so I, I, you know, I do address that in the book throughout. I mean, it's you know, it's a kind of um, theme that comes up in many chapters, um, and I, I, I think what's interesting is that in the in the early readings of Darwin, which is really what I'm focusing on, um, this is I think less true maybe for um, some of the later 20th century writings. Um, on evolution or on Darwin, uh, but in, the, in in these early readings, uh, you know, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century readings, they they tend to be um, 
you know, sort of uh, very open theologically and, uh, as you were suggesting, historically to the idea of evolution. So many people at the time write about how, you know, Arabic um, sort of... Uh, sort of theories of transmutation, for instance, um, or alchemical treatises on the sort of transmutation of substances, but also of species uh, in, in a variety of natural philosophical writings, you know, medieval Arabic writings on that subject. Um, and th so they're all referring to this, you know, and they're referring to uh, even someone like Ibn Khaldun to sort of, you know, sort of somehow uh, show that he had a kind of theory of social evolution as they saw it, right? So every, almost every aspect of the theory is, um, is, is somehow kind of naturalized through reference to the past, right? So um, that's one way in which kind of people um, understand, right, this, that, that this is part of a, of a broader Muslim discursive tradition and therefore, you know, the idea itself is not really in conflict with, um, with religious thought as, as people have experienced it for several centuries now. Um, but then there were also, you know, very specific kind of engaged um, discussions, theological discussions, um, and, you know, there's one uh, figure in particular who I focus on, Hussein um, al-Jist, who uh, is very interested in the kind of natural theological implications of, of the theory of evolution, especially as applied to man. So he, you know, stages this kind of dialectic between a, uh, you know, what he calls the sort of uh, least educated Muslim alim and, or scholar and, um, you know, an evolutionary materialist. And he calls him a naturalist evolutionary materialist. And the dialogue is kind of meant to show how the the uh, syllogistic and logical deductive reasoning methods that this lowest of you know ulama uh, of the ulama basically uh, can use against a, a materialist position and 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 you know to show how basically how easily he can trump the materialists um, on on grounds of logic, and so. In that sense, it's an interesting encounter because it's also about the encounter between uh, a very strong tradition of uh, science in in a Muslim context, which is you know logic and alim al kalam, especially so speculative theology, uh, meeting sort of you know Darwin's evolutionary theory and sort of really testing it on syllogistic grounds and testing it in terms of its assumptions. Um, and sort of making the argument essentially that you know the materialists. Um, you know, is is you know his arguments are neither logical um, nor uh, following the sort of proper uh, you know methods of, of deduction or induction as they as they might alternatively claim. Um, so you know, in the course of the dialogue, you know, you see also where he thinks the theory might agree or disagree with Muslim theology. And so basically, just to kind of cut a long story short. Uh, he has no problem with the theory of evolution uh, by natural selection as insofar as it's applied, as I said, to the natural world. He makes an exception, as many 19th century evolutionists like Alfred Russell Wallace did, with the case of man's soul. Um, and so that's sort of how he uh, sort of distinguishes it and shows how the materialist arguments um, just don't really sort of pan out on, on those grounds. And and our listeners, I'm sure, will be fascinated, Dr. Shakri, to read about these debates in depth and in your book, and, and to remember, you know, moving to our next question about the, the social and political context within which these debates take place, I think it's going to be very fascinating. But what you said reminded me of a treatise uh, by a scholar in Timbuktu about slavery. I recently published an article on this, why I happen to know about it, uh, Ahmed Baba. But he uses Ibn Khaldun to argue that all races are equal, equal, 
um, so that race-based slavery is there, therefore illegal in Islamic law. So it's interesting to see how these uh, ideas from natural philosophy work their way into the theological tradition of certain Islamic schools of thought long before the arrival of so-called Western ideas about science. Yet nonetheless, they're operating in a political context where people have different ideas about race who do, who do use also theological explanations such as the Hamitic myth to uh, justify this idea of race, which leads me into my next question. You, you mentioned Spencer earlier and that most of the Arab readings were getting Darwin filtered through Spencer, who's associated w- with, the, with the notion of social Darwinism. And considering that, you know, our, I'm, I'm guessing our, our Arabophone scholars who are working with Darwin you know, on one hand, they're, I guess, operating in some kind of colonial context, right? These are Egyptian scholars, or I don't know, from Syria, I'm guessing. But, you know, part of social Darwinism is that there's uh, subjugated races and there's, like, the ruling races, right? So how did they receive this idea? Or did they apply to their own societies? And given how much, you know, intellectualism and science was related to sort of the political movements in the Arab world, uh, how did they uh, sort of resolve this uh, conflict of social Darwinism in like the racial sense and the global sense? So first, just to kind of um, maybe a, a small point um, that w- it might only be uh, important for some historians of science, but some people, sort of especially in the Darwin industry, uh, you know, go apoplectic at the at the sort of uh, you know hearing upon hearing the, the term social Darwinism because. Um, you know, again, it's one of these sort of neologisms that um, emerge in the 1890s, right. early 1900s in, in different um, language traditions, but it's always used kind of negatively, right, and makes an assumption that there's a divide between, say, you know, um, and a theory of evolution as uh, defined by Darwin and others that would apply to the biological world on the one hand and then the social world on the other hand. At the same time, what the, the term that people do use, which is the term um, that I try to use in the book, is social evolution, right? And that is one of the main arenas in which people try and apply this theory of evolution to, right? Which is to the social world, to society, another 19th century neologism uh, in many languages, in, uh, including uh, European languages of the time. So that that concern with um you know as you as you were just uh, pointing out now with the kind of evolution of peoples of civilizations kind of on a on a on a global scale and in the context of of european colonialism and imperialism and and the rise of sort of uh, scientific racism and new theories of race was very much on people's mind. Um, it was kind of inescapable, really. You you, you couldn't think about Darwin uh, in many language traditions without somehow having that in mind. And they talk, um, you know, many of, of my actors, um, people that I look at in the book, they talk explicitly about, um, you know, about social evolution, as I said, uh, but also about... Um, the struggle for life between nations, right, as they see it. And, and nations can be an ambiguous term in Arabic, right, because omam uh, uh, could be peoples, it can be race uh, as well in Arabic. Um, and and so it has this kind of, this sort of, uh, again, ambiguous um, connotation, I think, in, in that context. And, I mean, again, many of the people that, that I'm looking at um, you might call them colonial intellectuals in, in a certain sense, right? The, the 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 framework is kind of 1860 to to 1950, and you know at least from 1860 to 1920s, 1930s, it was very much a kind of colonial uh, 18 sorry 1880s to 19 
uh, 20s and 30s was very much a kind of colonial context in the case of Egypt. Um, you also have in, in the Levant, um, you know, under the mandate system, this kind of extends um, uh, even further. So um, people were very much aware of the kind of the, these new markers of civilization. You know, colonialism itself was kind of predicated uh, to some extent on the idea that there were certain peoples uh, who could not uh, govern themselves properly, right? right? And that this was a threat to the international order, uh, whether it be sort of uh, through the collection of too much debt or uh, through mutinies. But there was some idea that uh, you had to kind of safeguard the international order through, uh, you know, a kind of necessary evil, which was kind of colonialism, uh, until people could therefore, you know, uh, thereafter govern themselves, right? Um, and so a lot of these people who are um, writing about Darwin, who are reading English, French, or German texts on evolution are kind of imbibing this language and discussion of social evolution and the political context in which that's formed and are thinking about how it applies um, to their own situations. And oftentimes, I mean, they um, they don't reject it outright, right? They sort of kind of take, um, you know, a sort of the, the kind of classic sort of um, colonial intellectual as go-between, right? Sort of someone who is uh-huh. a kind of um, a middleman, right, in a way, uh, thinking about imperialism, politically opposed to it in many on many levels, but also somehow understanding that it might be a necessary evil and that, you know, it's sort of, at least for some of the people that I looked at, um, that it might be a kind of necessary stage for the sort of evolution of, of nationalism in a way. Um, that becomes less easy to do after 1906 in the context of Egypt, but in the late 19th century, it's interesting, you know, to, to see that connection. Um, so yes, I mean the the social and political context is very salient, I think, um, here. So being that at the beginning of your time period in question, all of these areas, Egypt less so, but much of the Arabophone world is ostensibly uh, Ottoman territory. I'm curious about the connection between Ottoman authors writing in Turkish and the authors you deal with writing mainly in Arabic? I mean, they're getting some things from, you know, for instance, like someone like Shibli Shmael, who, you know, is goes to, you know, Protestant missionary schools in Beirut, then goes to Istanbul to get his medical degree. Um, he picks up materialism, for instance, mm-hmm. a, a lot of uh, the German evolutionary materialism that was kind of in vogue uh, at that time in Istanbul. I'm pretty sure he gets it from his stay there or from when he goes to um, to France, probably, also. He, he encounters that. So in some ways, I mean, the, it is a kind of shared world. I don't look so much at the sort of interactions. I mean, the sort of Turkish, I don't, you know, read Turkish sources, so I don't do, I don't, I didn't work on that. But, you know, having read sort of, um, you know, what my colleagues have written about the subject who have looked at sort of Turkish discourses, it's uncannily similar so I'm sure they were aware of their work and of each other's work and you know someone like uh, Ismail Masur who's Darwin's translator you know he's clearly reading a lot of the literature um, through Arabic translations I'm, I'm pretty sure um, but a lot of the literature that's coming out of Istanbul at that time and uh, you know they're all very much kind of aware of sort of the Ottoman Empire the fate of the Ottoman Empire you know sort of around the turn of the century through the First World War and after. I mean, that's something that they also think explicitly about. So um, I think it is a shared intellectual world, but, uh, you know, I, I, 
for obvious kind of language and sort of field restrictions, right? I didn't necessarily kind of draw those parallels, but yeah. So as I understand, many of the authors uh, you are dealing with, particularly during the earlier period, are writing in Egypt and in Cairo, which is one of the centers of uh, Arabic publishing during this period. Um, and if we know a little bit about the political context in Egypt, it's a fascinating period of this kind of, I mean, some authors have referred to it as a different shade of colonialism, for example. This um, extension of Egyptian state presence into the Sudan un under a condition within which you know Egypt itself is semi-colonized. Does, does this uh, Sudan adventure, which was like very much in the forefront of the imaginations of Egyptian intellectuals, does this come up in discussions of uh, Darwinism or the social evolutionary theories you mentioned as well? Yeah, I mean, it does, and I, I, I try to address it a little bit in the book. I mean, I wish I um, could have addressed it more, in a sense, but, um, you know, especially in terms of thinking about racial theory and sort of the way in which people understand, um, you know, sort of um, national subjecthood in light of that as well. Um, so, you know, what is Egypt? Who are the Egyptians? Were the original Egyptians uh, black? I mean, these all of these kinds of questions were actually asked by... Um, you know, a number of uh, popular science writers and readers of the time who were kind of curious about sort of, again, the, the lessons of, um, you know, of racial and evolutionary theory as applied to, to, to peoples. And so in some ways it comes up in that context, especially, you know, as you start to have, you know, like Anglo-Egyptian condominium and you, you have all of these arrangements um, under the British which kind of formalize uh, what I think Mahmoud Ali and his successors tried to do earlier, uh, as you said, you know, extend sort of uh, Egyptian statehood uh, into the south. So it comes in, I think, at, at the level of sort of thinking about um, uh, the national subject and uh, you know, who, who counts and, and who doesn't. Uh, so thinking about sort of the, the unity of the Nile Valley in that context uh, becomes very important for a kind of nationalist agenda which sees the Sudan as a kind of proper extension of Egypt that was, you know, historically sort of part of the Egyptian state, you know, for the ancient Egyptians uh, and so forth. So it comes in in, in that sense. But, uh, you know, I think the Sudan, you know, um, uh, Sudan sort of uh, project, I don't know what, how you want to call it, sort of, um, sort of, Colonial Egyptian colonial project uh, into the Sudan also comes into the story um, in terms of the networks that connect a lot of these writers and like um, especially the Nahdawi intellectuals of the 19th and 20th century who oftentimes you know served in sort of um, either in sort of you know, British military campaigns as translators in the case of Georgi Zaydan uh, or were kind of stationed in the Sudan by the Egyptian government and held posts there um, so in, in a sense, it forms, a, a, I think, a, an important part of the story of, um, of these, let's call them again, colonial intellectuals uh, and, and the sort of um, transformation of the Egyptian state, bureaucracy and institutions, which I think is an important part of, of, of the story I'm trying to tell as well. So I know where our discussion is really focusing on mostly the earlier period of translation of Darwin into Arabic. And I think that, you know, in some way that's, that's a very interesting moment, but my, my last question will deal with sort of later period. To lead into that question, I want to ask to what extent are particularly our Nahda type intellectuals, did they pick up on the class dimension implicated in, in the sort of 
thought of Spencer and others, and and how did they in, engage with that? Again, a good question that I, I think comes in a bit in the book, but um, is m- maybe I don't sort of address it quite so explicitly in those terms. Um, partly because I think, and I, and I think I make this point when thinking about sort of the, the, the difference in the context between Darwin's, say, Victorian readers and his Arabic readers in the 19th century or after, um, in which, you know, it is kind of um, couched in, in, in the language of a particular uh, class, of a particular, uh, uh, say, social sensibility and so forth that sometimes escapes the, the average Arabic reader. And so the translator, um, you know, uh, will often comment on on these distinctions and provide glossaries explaining uh, uh, explaining these references and so forth. Um, but I think again, on the whole, you know, the way I would see um, uh, these sort of these these Nahawi thinkers uh, is as essentially promoting a kind of uh, a new sense of middle class values among Arabic readers, right? I mean, it's very uh, bound up with, uh, especially initially in that sort of late 19th century uh, moment where people like the Muqtatif group and Al-Hilal and so forth um, are, are, are trying to uh, kind of translate a set of, a new set of, uh, of literary and social values to broader audiences and uh, a lot of the the fiction, a lot of the um, the writings, you know, are intended to kind of inculcate people in these values, to educate them, to uplift. Right? There's a lot of that kind of language that they use, um, and they talk about sort of the elite and the masses, or the you know the the, the specialists, the experts, and the public. Um, so it can have sort of a, a dual edged meaning, um, depending on on how you want to how you want to read that in that context. Um, but but yes, I think there is a, a strong uh, you know class dimension uh, to to a lot of these ideas as well uh, that that comes up in in different ways. Um, it comes up, for instance, in uh, discussions of oftentimes of, of say sexual se- selection, which is something that again I don't cover that much in the book. Um, and you get uh, of course a discussion of women and uh, you know of of. Uh, of the public in general, actually, uh, that is very imbued, I think, with a certain uh, elitist sensibility uh, that is kind of emerging in tandem with um, with w- with this broader sort of uh, reformist discourse that we call the Nahda. So the last major question I want to ask kind of follows on that, which is during the mandate periods in particular, uh, in the first half of the 20th century, as literacy expands and the press expands, inevitably, even if you know the Nacht does mainly an intellectual phenomenon, these ideas start to circulate, right? And they and and people from a wide segment, from a, a wide variety of uh, social segments, start to engage with the ideas uh, of Darwin, and and we know that you know, maybe not to compare to the United States, but I know that in uh, Turkey today, there's there's like a big creationist. Uh, uh, phenomenon f- m- movement. There's guys like Adnan Hoja who are going on TV like advocating creationism, and so when it gets to that popular level, uh, whether in the press or in whatever sources you were able to gather, and I'd be interested in knowing a little bit about those sources for getting at the public uh, perception of Darwinism, be it welcoming or hostile. You know what kind of translation happens there? You know from from elite knowledge to common knowledge, right? As, as Darwin goes from being cutting-edge science to, like, conventional wisdom. 
So there, I think there's a there, you, there's there are a number of themes in that question. Uh, let me see if I can kind of address them one by one. Um, I mean, one thing that you began with is kind of this transformation of um, uh, education that really hits the Arabic-speaking world uh, at large in, in the 1920s and 1930s in particular. And you can see this in Egypt. You can see it, as you said, in, in the Levant um, uh, uh, under the mandate uh, system. And you can see it actually in many places, um, you know, uh, in North Africa and, and West Asia. Uh, around that time, and and it has a huge effect on um, what we might call the public, right? And so one of the things that speaking in the name of the public uh, does uh, in the 19th century is kind of obscure the fact that actually the, the literary public, in other words, the reading public, was, was quite small. Of course, we know from anecdotes, from um, discussions of sort of reading habits at the time that you know, people often read collectively, and that knowledge is transmitted uh, even beyond literacy, right? So uh, things that make their way into the press get discussed in cafes and salons and, you know, uh, informal settings, which would include literate and non-literate people. So um, the ideas are, are, are not necessarily confined to, uh, to, the, to the literate public, uh, but oftentimes they kind of they presuppose that to some extent, right? They presuppose a certain set of references and and so forth. Um, and and what you have with the expansion of literacy uh, in in the sort of uh, you know first third of the twentieth century and after uh, is really, I think, a, a transformation of these public discourses. In other words, these discussions made in the name of the public um, and the rise, I think, of, of counter-public discourses, right, which are aimed to uh, create uh, new communities of readership, um, uh, new epistemic communities sometimes uh, against something that they see as kind of, you know, a hegemonic, uh, a hegemonic, say, discourse about the nation state or uh, about, um, you know, uh, Islam or whatever it would be that they that they tend to focus on. Um, and so, uh, you know, thinking about kind of the story of evolution through the 20th century, I think, can't uh, ignore the, 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 the impact of these changing readerships um, and, and the fact that um, you know, many people begin to take up Darwin in different ways, uh, especially, uh, as I said, uh, after the first third of the 20th century. And so I try to look at that a little bit in the book. Again, it's, you know, it's it's really mostly dealing with um, the earlier bit of that story. And I, I focus on uh, a figure or two at the end, uh, which takes the story through uh, the Second World War and, and just shortly after. Um, and, uh, and I try and talk about the rise of the, sort of these counter-public discourses. Um, but I think with this example that uh, you're giving of, say, creationists in Turkey now, uh, what you're seeing there also is the fact that, uh, and again, this was true in the 19th century, that creationism itself became a kind of global discourse that many people picked up um, and actually associate with evolution, right? They think of it and as the people who write about it present it as a, as a kind of, uh, as a sort of, the scientifically accurate take on uh, on uh, sort of um, design in the world or the the, the making of the world uh, in a kind of you know sort of non evolutionary way. Um, so you know it's uh, I think in in that sense you you know you see again many people picking up uh, sort of new ideas of um, 
uh, of evolution or of creation against this kind of backdrop of, of, of sort of the global circulation of ideas um, um, written in the name of, of science. Well, you know, by scientists, oftentimes these creationists uh, uh, texts that they're picking up are, you know, are, are, are uh, done by people in, in science departments in, in Europe and in the States and so forth, and they're sort of invited to, you know, mutual conferences and so forth. So uh, it is a kind of, in a, in a way, a kind of global network. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's a, it's 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 part of the story of the of the, the the rise of different readerships, and those are local, and sometimes uh, those are global, as I try and show in the book. And, and I mean, you know, that raises an interesting point that an idea like intelligent design, quote unquote, I mean, that in itself, it, it takes the, you know, Darwinian wisdom and knowledge and tries to ascribe it or appropriate it for an entirely different purpose, in this case, attributing the, all of this to God. And so I guess uh, we'll conclude here. Of course, you, there, you you have a lot of examples in your in your book. I'm sure it's hundreds of pages and uh, full of lots of examples of everything you've just described, but I'd like to know maybe, do you have a example of a really bizarre or creative uh, or really striking um, appropriation of Darwinian ideas for a completely different purpose? I don't know. I'm thinking like, do you have someone say that Islam is sort of the last of these religions of the book, the perfection of it? Like, for example, taking that idea of evolution and applying it in a completely different field in that cultural context. Hmm, I'm trying to think. I mean, I can't think of um, anyone making, you know, that specific argument. But, you know, say someone like Salama Musa, you know, and his kind of futurist writings, which were kind of very much inspired by, um, you know, H.G. Wells and he's kind of writing in in the fashion of a lot of, um, you know, uh, Fabian socialists of the time. And, um, and so sort of trying to present a kind of theory of social evolution that kind of has this kind of utopian futurist dimension and so you know he 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 writes for instance on um sort of you know Egypt on the future and sort of imagines you know Egypt in some I can't remember if it was 2056 or what the date was that he he chose um but uh you know so he kind of has this theory of sort of you know Egyptians and sort of how uh, you know, marriage will be regulated. It's going to be this kind of eugenic state and society, which will then lead to the progress and perfection of the Egyptian peoples. And you'll get, you know, people with large heads and webbed feet, and uh, who have all kinds of, you know, uh, what, extra what human evolutionary explanation for the webbed feet. I, you know, where does this come from? I think, you know, so that they'd be sort of excellent swimmers and also, you know, fine intellects at the same time. I'm not really sure. I think it was sort of this idea that, you know, there would be kind of adaptive, you know, um, regeneration of, of the human type sort of in, in a physical and a kind of moral and social sense as well. Right. It's, you know, probably slightly random examples, but, you know, it was kind of his particular reverie of the future. So uh, so I think it's interesting, you know, to, to read these accounts. I mean, and that's a big theme is a lot of these guys uh, imagine a kind of uh, utopic, you know, future you know, which is sort of, uh, I mean, it's it, it's ostensibly sort of connected to the reform of the Arab world as they know it and as they're hoping to kind of contribute to. Uh, but it's also part of a of a broader vision of a kind of um, you know international order that they that they would see themselves as kind of falling part of. Um, 
at that point. So, yeah, there are a few things like that, I guess, that seem a bit wacky, but yeah. Well, it's a very fascinating way of reading the development of certain intellectual movements in the Arab world and really, you know, global or international intellectual trends that take particular manifestations in different sociopolitical contexts. And I appreciate you giving us a little preview uh, of what's in that book uh, on the podcast today. Thanks, and thanks for inviting me. Again, the book is Reading Darwin in Arabic by Marwa Al-Shakri from Columbia University. The press is Chicago University Press. Um, look forward to that. It's, it's out now in your local libraries and bookstores and internet uh, destinations. We also invite you to check out our own internet destination, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll, f- you'll find an easy link to the book as well as uh, some, a short bibliography for those who want to read more on this topic. You also get access to our other episodes dealing with history of science and the Ottoman Empire and the Muslim world and have a space to leave your comments and questions. That's all for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, take care.